Welcome to the Old Chick Snowship Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Arthurton. This podcast is dedicated to helping midlife women step into the inherent power and wisdom of a time of life when they often feel overlooked and underrepresented and even begin to doubt themselves. Each week, we will cover information and inspirational topics along with real stories from real women who are defying cultural stereotypes and perceptions of midlife. Women who are reinventing themselves, starting businesses, chasing their dreams, and tackling challenges they never thought possible. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this episode of the Old Chick Snowship podcast. Today, we are talking all things sleep. This is a topic I really wanted to talk about because I have had, well, I had insomnia for a number of years. I hear it from a number of my clients and women in my community that it's really hard to create your kick-ass next chapter when you are dragging yourself through the day. And I hear, you know, sleep being kind of like the number one complaint of women going through menopause. And so we're going to unpack this today with my guest, who is Shelby Harris, is the sleep doctor. And she is the author of the Women's Guide to Overcoming Insomnia. So welcome, Shelby. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. No problem. So tell me, how did you get into studying sleep? (laughs) Yeah, it's kind of a funky area, right? So I was in, when I went to college, I took a year off between college and graduate school. And I was working on a research study that was looking at addictions. And we were having, we were going to rehabs for alcoholism. And we found that treating insomnia when people were in early treatment for early rehab for alcoholism, rehab or treating their insomnia actually significantly helped their risk relapse for for alcoholism. So a lot of people will turn to substances again, because they're not sleeping. So if we kind of get the sleep a little bit better, it helps their relapse rates. So when I saw that just a few treatment sessions, we were using medication at the time. Now that changed people's lives. I thought, oh my gosh, in this one little area, how many other areas can we apply it to? And so that's when I started studying more and more in graduate school. Yeah. I mean, it is a fascinating topic. Like I said, at the beginning, I had my own issues with insomnia for a couple of years and I started reading about it. And sleep is so important for like just about everything. I mean, I guess there's a reason why we sleep, right? (laughs) Because so like, what are some of the top reasons to get better sleep? So it's funny, people always ask, what's the purpose of sleep? And it's hard to come up with like a succinct sentence for it. They're just right. We don't have a good succinct reason for why we sleep. What we do know is that when you don't sleep, a whole host of things happen, right? So we know that with sleep deprivation, your body doesn't repair itself. So you're at a greater risk for accidents, falls. We know that your memory is not processing in the same way. So we don't retain information. Our processing speed is influenced. We find that it influences our mood. So you're at a higher risk Mm -hmm. for depression depression, anxiety, it really, your stress tolerance is lowered. We notice that it helps, it, I mean, it bolsters your metabolism. So if you're not sleeping, you have problems with losing weight or you tend to gain weight because you're eating more and you're not getting signals that say to stop. So it really, it influences your hormones, your brain, your fun, brain function, emotions, your quality of life. It is the bedrock for everything. Yeah, like literally everything. And yeah. and I think there's like more and more studies coming out, even expanding on what we know today. Constantly, yeah. Yeah. And so, so it's funny. I was thinking about sleep the other day and I was watching my dog and I'm like, mm-hmm. my dog never has trouble falling asleep, staying asleep. And I started to think, you know, it's so interesting. I'm like, animals don't have the same 
mental, obviously, capacity as we do. And how much of sleep is actually a mental game? And I know you talk a lot about this, right? Like how we get in our own way when it comes to getting to getting sleep. Yeah. I mean, that being said, there are dog studies of certain sleep disorders. So we do see oh. sleep apnea. We see narcolepsy, a lot of sleep disorders really? in in certain dogs. Yeah, it's fascinating. Oh, that's fascinating. Uh, but when it comes to insomnia, less so, right? So it really, in, a, in humans, you know, it is very much a mental game. It can be, you know, caused by a myriad of issues, right? Could just be you just had a few bad nights of sleep and then you start worrying about it. And then you start doing things to try and get more sleep that actually impact it and make it worse. So it can be something random that causes it. You don't even know what. It could be something like a hormonal change, but it really is the worry. I mean, there are things that you're doing about whether it's changing your bedtime, wake time that can influence it, but it's it really is the worry about sleep and the trying to force it that's the thing that actually gets us even more in trouble for many patients. Yeah, that is so true because I started having sleep issues at the beginning of my menopausal journey. And there was a time where I was sleeping maybe, and I think there was a lot of stress on top of it then. I was sleeping like two or three hours a night and I would wake up the next day and I would be like, fine. Yeah. Right. And I'd be like functioning. And I kept thinking, oh my God, like this is not good. Something really, really bad is going to happen. Right. Because I guess at that point, I'm testing it to, you know, I was in a bit of overdrive, you know, stress and stuff like that. But I started to really think about sleep and I started to worry about it. And I actually, well, I mean, I, I was also experiencing other symptoms of stress, but I took a leave of absence from my job to like really focus on my health and to focus on sleep. And then I started, and I've heard you talk about this at all, like talk about this all the time. I started, thinking about sleep all the time, like literally throughout my day, I would be thinking about how am I going to sleep tonight? How am I going to get, you know, better sleep tonight? Like what's going to happen if I don't sleep? Like all of these things. And so by the time I'd actually got to bedtime, my brain was like, and then I'm reading about sleep and how important it is and what happens if you don't. And I'm like impending death. Right. (laughs) And by the time I got to bed, I would be so worked up about not being able to sleep that I really couldn't sleep. Yeah, that's a very, unfortunately, a very common thing that people get Mm -hmm. stuck in. The thing that I often will say to patients is think about before, I mean, for some people, they can remember time before they had insomnia, some people can't. But for the people who can remember beforehand, I'll say to them, did you ever think about sleep this way? Did you ever set up or dread the night or wonder what was going to happen? (laughs) 99% And 99% of the time, it's no, I welcomed going to bed at night. Now it's you dread the night as it gets closer. Yeah. And it's that aspect that really is part of the problem for some people. I mean, not everyone tends to get into that vicious cycle, but it's the most, in my opinion, of all the patients I've seen over the years, it's the most common one that people mm. get stuck in. And then the other thing that you mentioned is the reading about it, right? So (laughs) it's it's such a double-edged sword with this stuff in that for people who are generally good sleepers, the books out there, I love like the Matt Walker Why We Sleep book and all the stuff that's out there about sleep and why it's important. Those are great for people who don't make sleep a priority in their lives. They're different. For people with insomnia, reading about that stuff is only going to make it worse 
And sometimes those books and studies sometimes will lump together people who have insomnia and people who just purposely don't get enough sleep because they're working too much. And right. those are different classes of people. So it's about you're making it a priority when you have insomnia because you're talking about it all day. You're thinking about it nonstop. That yeah. You have to be thoughtful about what you're consuming because just saying, I'm going to die if I don't sleep, that actually is what worsens the problem. <laughs> so what yeah. I always tell people, I say, it's my job to worry about the effects for you. I oh. will tell you when things aren't working and then we'll move from there. But right now I want you to put it to rest so that you're not worrying about all the consequences because that's always in the back of the mind making it worse. Yeah. And that's so true because when I got to a point where I was just like, okay, I can't figure this out. I'm just going to stop thinking about it. Yeah. <laughs> that's when I actually started to sleep. And right. then I was like, oh, look at that. Right. <laughs> right. And it's very hard for many people to get to that point of just stop thinking about it. Right. So there's a very cognitive part to it. And then also for a lot of people, it's behavioral. So it's maybe you're going to bed earlier than your body wants to at this point, even though you're exhausted, maybe you're going to bed tired, but not actually sleepy. So if you're getting in bed tired, but not sleepy enough, you let your brain take over more. So it's about finding the right timing of getting to bed. Maybe it's later. It goes against what most people think to do. So we change up some of the behavioral things as well that can make it a little easier for the brain to kind of chill out a bit. So you just mentioned an interesting distinction there between tired, but not sleepy. Is that what you said? What's the distinction? Like, how do I know if I'm tired? Like, because I kind of lump those all together. Yes. So fatigue and sleepiness are two different constructs, even though we always use the term interchangeably, which they really aren't. So fatigue is that feeling that most people with insomnia actually report. So it's that I'm so tired, right? But I can't nap. That's a very common mm -hmm. thing. Or I wish I could nap, but I just can't physically, even though I want to. Or I'm going to bed at night, but and I'm so tired, but sleep won't come. So it's that feeling of no energy dragging a ton of bricks behind you. Like, I just want the day to end. I have nothing in me. But sleepiness is a different feeling. Sleepiness is an irrepressible need for sleep. So I can tell who's sleepy when they're sitting in like the waiting room of my doctor's office, because, or even when I was working in the sleep center, we could tell who was falling asleep. Like you just can't keep <laughs> awake. So if you get in bed at the time when you're actually sleepy, you physically are going to go to sleep because you're feeling that urge. It could also be things like watery eyes, yawning, heavy feeling. That is what we tend to get more when we're sleepy than when we're just fatigued. When you're sleepy, you can nap. You can do all those things right. because your body is trying to correct itself. Fatigue is that other feeling. And what people with insomnia frequently do is they get in bed when they're tired because they're just mentally done and physically done, but they're not actually sleepy enough, which is why for some people, I actually have them stay up a lot later, but still get up at the same time. So we try to get them physically sleepier to fall asleep more readily. Yeah. And I've heard you talk about figuring out the right amount of sleep for you, like that not everybody needs eight hours of sleep because I mean, I, you know, like other people thought that was like the gospel, right? Yeah. Like you must or else yeah. kind of thing. So like, how do people go about figuring out what is the right amount of sleep for them? It's a tough one, but I'm a huge fan of just tracking your sleep on a diary. So old school, I don't like to use all the tech when you're trying to figure this stuff out, especially with people who have insomnia, because it can worsen some of their sleep. They're like hyper focus on it. Mm -hmm. So get a, get a sleep diary. I have them on my website and get them. National Sleep Foundation has them. They're everywhere. So look for a sleep diary and it will literally have you just kind of track your fatigue ratings, your tiredness rating throughout the day. And then what time you go to bed, how you sleep at night and what time you get up. And the ideal way to figure it out is really 
if you can take, I mean, this is not possible for many people, but if you can take a week on vacation where you don't have to get up at the exact same time every day, go to bed around the same time at night and then wake up naturally without an alarm clock and Mm -hmm. then kind of average together on your diary days four, five, six, seven, because the first few days you might be a little too sleep deprived and bring it back. So the last few days, see what your average is when you naturally wake up. And if you feel generally well-rested for most of the day, maybe not all day, but most of the day, and refreshed to go about your day, that's probably your sleep need. Gotcha. Hmm. Yeah, because I mean, I've read this too, that evolutionarily, there are people that just need more sleep than others and can function, you know, the same. So it makes perfect sense to me that we all can't be squashed into. It's a range. And honestly, that eight, because most people fall between seven to nine hours. Some people are more the outlier of six. Some people need more than nine. They're definitely outliers. But you think about it, seven to nine, eight is just a clean number that's in the middle. It's easy to say. That's it. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Yeah, we live in a world of averages, right? Exactly. It's easier to just state it that way in the media, but it really isn't. And the more people take eight, maybe you are an eight-hour person. I actually am like eight and a half hours. If Mm. you're an eight, you paint it in gold and you put it on a pedestal and you look at it every day, you're going to be severely disappointed if you really just are a seven or a six and a half hour person. And every day you don't get eight, you're just trying to force a number. That really, why are you forcing a number if you feel fine on a little less? So if you have times during the day where you want, like you feel like napping, right? Like you're a napper and maybe some people are just more nappers than others. I don't know. But is that an indication that you're not getting enough sleep at night? It doesn't have to be. So if you're fine with your sleep at night, you're getting a good amount, but you can't get through the day without a nap. You do want to just make sure that, you know, it's like the level of sleepiness you feel at various different points during the day. So if it's at one point in the day in the afternoon and you're fine, then a nap is not a problem. But you can't be a substitute on a regular basis for less sleep, right? Once in a while, I have people who work shift work will build in napping schedules and that's fine. But if you really are very sleepy much of the time during the day, then it might be even if you get enough sleep and you still have to nap, then you might want to talk to a doctor because there might be a sleep apnea or something else that's going on Mm -hmm. that's impacting whatever quality sleep you're getting. Right, right. Makes sense. So if you have a patient present who is perimenopausal, menopausal, and I, this is going to be an interesting conversation because the distinction between sleepiness and fatigue, like, so, you know, often perimenopausal or menopausal women will present fatigued because like we all go through hormone shifting, all of that. And we're like, okay, I have no energy, right? Where do you start to help a woman who's kind of going through this change of life, figure out sleep? Because I mean, so much, so much of what I hear is women complaining that they can't sleep. And that was definitely my experience, right? So my area of specialty is something called cognitive behavior therapy for insomnia. And it has been shown to be very effective for many women. There were some studies like the SWAN study. There's a bunch of studies that are showing that it's effective for women in perimenopause, regardless of, you know, like if you don't always have to go to menopausal hormone treatment, so MHT. So it's essentially a treatment where we work on, for some people, the cognitive stuff. So the worries about sleep, the forcing it to sleep. It's a very short-term evidence-based treatment. So sometimes it's four to eight sessions. It's really short term. Mm-hmm. Then we'll change. I'll change with a lot of the women I work with the bedtime. So sometimes they're getting in bed and they're trying to force sleep and they're in bed too many hours. So I actually will restrict them a lot to try and get them good and sleepy to sleep more through the night. So even if they wake up, they're in a deeper stage of sleep and can go back to sleep a little bit faster than if they were in bed too many hours. And we'll change what they're doing in bed in the middle of the night. Sometimes people are on their phone. They're worrying about it. Yeah. That's 
can really influence it too. So we'll do all that. Sometimes some meditation, it varies. But like I said, short term, four to eight, four to 12 sessions, depending on the complexity. And then if that's not enough, then we will have a discussion. Or if they're super severe and they're like, I don't think I can, these things are going to do anything. Then it's a discussion with the gynecologist about what are the treatments we want to do. I also will work with them to minimize the environment around them, any environmental disruptions. So like, are you waking up with hot flashes, night sweats? Do we want to think about the temperature, the bedding that you're using? Are you sleeping a lot of times it's sleeping with a partner who's very loud that can disrupt right. sleep. So we think about that and tailor it to the person as well. So for those who are listening who don't know what CBT is, can you just give a quick explanation about what that is? Yeah. So CBT is a general type of therapy. So cognitive mm-hmm. behavior therapy. But when we use it for insomnia, it's called CBTI. And CBTI is a little different than the typical CBT treatment. So a lot of people are like, I don't want to go to another therapist. I don't want to do therapy again. This is not the same. So a lot of it is really working on the cognitive stuff, like I was saying. So challenging the thoughts about I can't function, the forcing to sleep, meditation if we have to, that area. And then the behavioral. So it's sleep hygiene, but it's not just sleep hygiene because I bet you Nine out of 10 women who have tried that, I limited caffeine, I limited alcohol, and it still doesn't work. But you still need to do that as a basis. Then changing your bedtimes and wake times, changing what you're doing in the bed in the middle of the night. And then every session, we just modify and problem solve and add in a few extra things if we want to. And then you go on your merry way. Cool. Yeah. I mean, I think actually what you're talking about is really interesting because I think the default and what I see a lot as the default is can't sleep. Oh, here's some hormone therapy, which I also know is not right for everybody. Right. So knowing that there are other options for things that, you know, can work like meditation, you know, working on your thoughts and stuff like that, which, like I said, I think we get in our own way a lot when it comes to sleep. But it's interesting to me is that, you know, the when I first started practicing Hormone therapy was not a thing that most people would even talk about. Like it just Mm. women, and that's why I wrote my book about women and insomnia is because people just didn't, there was like a shame kind of feeling to it. Like, I don't want to talk about it. No one's going to prescribe me anything. But the reality is there are, it's a tiered approach, right? Cognitive therapy for insomnia is amazing, but it doesn't work for everyone. But then you can try hormones. You can try, I mean, if that's not enough or you can't take it, there's antidepressants you can take that can help with the hot flashes. There's different options that it doesn't have to just be, I see people less so the hormones. I see them getting put on like all the sleep aids. So the addictive right. sleep aids, even more so. And there are many effective options more so than those things because that becomes yeah. a bigger risk factor if you take it for many years. Getting off of them for some people can be a challenge. Yeah, I can imagine. Because when I had my sleep issues, the first thing my doctor did was give me sleeping pills, which, and I did take for a couple of nights, but I was afraid of them because I was like, I don't want to get addicted to this. I need to learn how to sleep on my own. Right. But a lot of people just think that there's no other way because they're just, that's the thing that's the default for a lot of people. And it Mm -hmm. just doesn't need to be. And that really is not the gold standard in the field. It's CBT. And then we go to other treatments, whether it's hormones, whether it's antidepressants, whether it's sleeping pills, but there are other effective options. Yeah. So for those who are listening, you know, who like if you had to pick a place for somebody to start, so perimenopausal, menopausal woman who is right now listening to this and she is not sleeping, what would you say is kind of her first line of defense on that? First line of defense is if you don't want to or can't find someone who does treatment, I'd say don't ignore it. That's the first thing. So talk to your doctor. But if you want to try a behavioral treatment first, there are great 
like my book is one example. There's mm-hmm. apps book. like Sleepio. There's some really great apps out there that you can try that do CBTI. That Somrist is another one that just got FDA approval. So there's a bunch out there that you can try. If that's not enough, or you're on a whole host of sleep aids that are working or not really working, then I usually recommend seeing a specialist to help you kind of tailor a program. So you can go to something like the Society of Behavioral Sleep Medicine, where they have a lot of practitioners such as myself that can help. That's a great next place to go. The other thing to consider too, that we see a lot in perimenopause is there's a increase in sleep apnea. So a lot of people mm. think, oh, it's just an older male overweight thing. Yeah. But really, when women hit perimenopause, essentially your hormones are changing your muscle tone. So in your airway, things get a little looser. And when we sleep, we tend to snore a little bit more. And it might not even be that overt, like really loud snoring. It might just be pauses or gasps in the night. So it gets misdiagnosed in women as, oh, you're going through perimenopause or you're depressed or you're just tired. Deal with it. It's part of getting older. Sleep apnea is much more common than people think. And if you get that treated, you want to talk to your doctor, go to a sleep specialist, because if you think there's any pauses in breathing, you're urinating a lot at night, you wake up with headaches, you have a lot of heartburn, that's all something to look at. And then one other disorder we see an increase in is, is restless leg disorder. So uh-huh. I have that myself. So as the night gets closer, your legs just kind of that creepy crawly feeling. It happens in your arms too sometimes. So some people say they can't fall asleep, but it's really because their legs are moving all over the place and they're just restless. And that can be treated very effectively in some people too. Wow. So what exactly is restless leg syndrome? Like what's happening in your legs? Like why do you get that tingling? So it's, there's a few, many reasons why it can happen. The thought is it's due to dopamine deficiency. So, but for some people it can be due to an iron deficiency. So that's often Mm. the start and that that's often is what happens with me. So it's, you want to get your blood checked. They can check your ferritin levels and that that's very helpful. And if that's not enough, then sometimes for people it's that restless, everyone describes it a little bit different. I just like, I need to keep stretching my legs and I just can't fall asleep. And if I fall asleep, they kind of like jerk me awake. So, and it's just uncontrollable. And it's always when the night comes and there can be triggers for some people too. So it could be if you're taking certain medications that can worsen it, alcohol can worsen it, over-exercise in the evening. There's a lot of different things that can cause it. Hmm, interesting. I had not heard that associated with perimenopause before. Yeah, That's interesting. We'd see it a lot during pregnancy, a lot during pregnancy. And then we start seeing it somewhat during perimenopause and like at various stages. It's very much more associated with women and during different hormonal changes for sure. Yeah. So there's a few other questions I have, and I'm trying to figure out which order to put them in because I have so many. <laughs> so I've heard the thing, the saying about it's the quality of sleep that matters versus the quantity of sleep. Yeah. Yeah. What's your take on that? I've been saying that for ages. So it's quality over quantity. So I okay. so that's the thing is if like someone is sleeping six hours, six and a half hours, they feel well rested, refreshed for most of the day. They don't have any medical significant issues, psychiatric issues, and they're good with it. Why would we then try to like force mm. eight hours? Like you, right. you know, like just to give someone a sleeping pill, or I'd rather someone with six and a half hours of good sleep awakening here and there, but goes back to sleep than eight or nine hours of broken, 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 or nine hours of apnea throughout the night. And you don't know what's happening. So we first work on quality and then work on quantity until you feel like the quality starts to suffer again. Right. Okay. makes sense. And wearables, sleep wearables. I mean, I have an aura ring, <laughs> which actually 
probably at the beginning, now I have it in its place, but actually at the beginning probably did me more harm than good because I became the first thing I would do. I'd wake up in the morning and go, how did I sleep? Before I even really checked in with my body or how I feel, I would let this app <laughs> tell yeah, me. Turn it for you. Yeah. Wearables are great. I always try to make the distinction. I've talked about this earlier is that it's between people who make sleep a priority and people who don't. So if you're typically someone who just might go to bed a little later than you should, you get all that sort of stuff, you have a little too much alcohol, the wearables are wonderful for that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. But if you're someone who has chronic insomnia, the wearables are a kiss of death for many people because it does make you, even if you think you slept, if the watch says otherwise, that worsens the whole problem because then you try to force sleep the next night and it's all based on the watch. It's really, insomnia is a disorder of perception more than anything. So let go of the wearables. And it's actually been documented in research. We call it orthosomnia. So if you want the wearables, fine. But if you find you're always checking them and you have insomnia, try to stay away from them and go by what you perceive. Yeah. I mean, now I find it interesting more than anything, like, you know, if I eat too late or, you know, the impact of alcohol, for example, like, oh, I had two drinks tonight. Look how my sleep is not so good. That's what they should be used for, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So if you have insomnia, do not get a wearable that like my advice I'm not an expert, but my advice, do not get a wearable. Um, Also, don't think that it's a sleep study because a lot of there, some of them are marketing themselves as like the easiest at home sleep study. It's not a sleep study. They don't have anywhere near the same amount of data. So yeah, you want to know more about your sleep, talk to a doctor. Yeah, for sure. And talk to me about sleep and exercise. How important is exercise in quality sleep? Exercise is really important. It's I always say like at night when you're sleeping, it's your battery recharging. So if you're not moving during the day, you don't need to recharge your battery as much. So any kind of exercise is wonderful. Just movement is necessary. So I do think, you know, the, the beginning of the pandemic was horrible for a lot of people, myself included, right? People aren't move, weren't moving. They weren't getting light exposure. We mm. started home. And then stress, insomnia rates went through the roof, understandable. But if you can move, especially the goal is about try to avoid it within three hours of bed. You can do some light, gentle walking, yoga, that's fine. But you don't want to do anything vigorous within three hours of bed. But if you can, four to six hours before bed, do something that gets your heart rate up for about 20 minutes. You're warming your body up so then it cools off by bedtime. That's the key. But if I personally can't work out four to six hours before bed because of the way my life is structured. So I work out in the morning every day. And that's helpful too because it gets you some light exposure. I work out in my basement in front of the window. So whatever you can do to move, just be thoughtful about when you do it and not too close to bed. Right. So for somebody who's not a vigorous exerciser, let's say you know your exercise is walking in yoga. Yeah, that's enough. You just want to get your heart rate up and warm your body a bit. So a very, very leisurely walk, it's good, but it might not do enough. It's really, you want to just try and pump your pump, do a little power walking if you can, but like literally 20 minutes, it doesn't need to be the whole time that you're out there. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, cool. And sleep hygiene. Yeah. I know we've kind of touched on it here and there. Like what are the, like the top kind of three or five things that you see that are like, okay, these are like sleep hygiene 101. (laughs) Sleep hygiene is really important for most, I mean, I think for most people, but I don't want people getting so fixated on it because when you get fixated on it, it just worsens sleep a lot of times. They're important, but if you try all the sleep hygiene stuff and it's not enough, definitely see someone for more, Mm -hmm. there's more behind sleep hygiene. But the things that are the non-negotiables for me, as often as I can, I'm not perfect with it, is if I have a bad night, I try to make sure you don't sleep in in the morning. So it's compensating for a bad night is really a big one. Mm, Right. Consistent bed and wake schedule. 
So then it'll help with the next night. The other big things are alcohol within three hours of bed. Alcohol is a real sleep disruptor. So it really can influence your sleep quality, the quantity of sleep. That's another really big one. Screens get debated somewhat about how much of an impact they actually have before bed and during the night. I think that they, I mean... I think they definitely have some impact, whether it's the light quality itself that's making the issue or the fact that it's the light plus someone what you're looking at at night. Like a lot of people will just have random texts that pop up or they'll check their email. They'll doom scroll on the internet. Like that's not going to help the news. What's good in the news? Like that stuff is not going to help people sleep either. Big meals are another big one that I think people need to think about. So if you're eating a really heavy meal within three hours of bed, and on the other side, that can worsen sleep. But the other side is some people love intermittent fasting. Mm. All good if it works for you. But if you're waking up hungry or you're ravenous in the morning, you probably need to have a small snack about an hour before bed. So those are some of the big like ones that I think people need to really focus on. And also just light exposure. So get up in the morning, get some light. Don't yeah. Stay- yeah, it's interesting, especially the food one, because that was one actually that I learned from my aura ring for sure. And I've actually kind of shifted my food intake because I used yeah. to eat like hardly at all during the day and then eat a lot at night because I was busy. Right. And now I'm like making a concerted effort to like eat more during the day and eat lighter at night. But then, you know, the flip side of that was waking up hungry. Yeah. Right. So trying to find that balance. But that's that was one place where like the aura ring was really helpful for me and kind of showing me like, <laughs> You know, that difference is right. So a little snack that's a mix of carb and protein is really helpful for some people about an hour before bed. So I often I love Greek yogurt. So I'll have some Greek yogurt, unsweetened Greek yogurt, I'll put some strawberries or raspberries in it, a little bit of peanut butter. For me, that's perfect. Mm. So if you can find something that's a little bit of carb and protein, that's a really nice mix. Yeah. And what about like, you know, I hear this a lot too. People talk about like, oh, I wake up at the same time every night. Like, you know, I wake up at 3am or I wake up at 4am. Is that the same thing? Like, because a whole bunch of reasons there, you know, but one of the biggest culprits is usually it's, I mean, we all wake up four to six, four to seven times a night, depending upon how long you're sleeping for. When you finish a full sleep cycle of light sleep, like stage one, two, deep sleep, three, REM, you actually awaken and then you go to a sleep cycle again. So when people awaken, we all awaken at night. We just don't always remember it. If someone awakens every time they look at the clock, many times it's they've completed a sleep cycle and they've trained themselves to look at the clock. So it's like, oh, every night at two. Well, if you're good at roughly going to bed around the same time, it's usually that's what happens. Then it can be a whole bunch of other things that you're going to bed too early. You have something to eat that's, you know, at the wrong time. It can be hot flashes that tend to happen at the same time, all that stuff. Yeah. Because the hot flashes I know, like for me, one of my triggers for hot flashes was like blood sugar, right? So like I was waking up at three because I was, and I was hungry, right? And having a hot, well, having a hot flash, then recognizing I was hungry. Exactly. Yeah, that's super interesting. So, well, so first of all, everybody listening, go get this book. I thoroughly, I mean, I've been thinking about sleep for a long time now. I'm not nearly as obsessed with it as I used to be, (laughs) but- Like, seriously, like I got to this point where I was, I recognized the obsession and then I had to be like, okay, you need to back off. Good. I'm glad you did. A lot of people struggle with that. So good. Yeah. But like I read your book and I absolutely loved it and I learned some stuff like, you know, so everybody, you know, I think this should be like a part of the menopause Bible (laughs) is to, you know, read this book because if nothing else, even if you're not having insomnia, but like even some of the stuff that you talk about, like the difference between, you know, sleepy and fatigued, which again, I confuse that a lot, right? Yeah. 
And there was just, I don't know, lots and lots of really, really good insight and tips and strategies to help us get better sleep because it's so important, right? For sure. Yeah. So what's one piece of advice that you would give to, you know, the midlife woman Mm -hmm. who is thinking about her next chapter? She's feeling really low energy. She may or may not be struggling with sleep. Do you have one piece of advice that you would give her? Find someone who will listen to you and validate your, your symptoms. Mm. Just, just don't let someone tell you that's part of aging. There's nothing you can do. Deal with it. Find someone who will listen. You, I always say you are the expert on you. If you feel something is off and it's not getting better, talk to someone and find someone who's a real specialist and will listen. Yeah, that, you know what, even <laughs> that's actually a fantastic tip because I was suffering in silence for a long time, not sleeping, but there was a little bit of like, I don't know, like shame associated with it or something. I didn't want to, I didn't want to mention it to anybody. And then even just like one day talking to my girlfriends and being like, here's what I'm struggling with, right? Like even just letting it out, like took the pressure off. So even that, and then taking the next step to talking to somebody who can, you know, like you said, validate your feelings. And you know, when you know, when something's off. Yes. hundred percent. Yeah. Which is why I love so much about your work because it isn't one size fits all. It's really about tuning back into yourself. Like where are you getting in the way? Where are your thoughts? Because for so many of us, right. And that's why I was saying it's a mental game because I think for so many of us, we're just stressing, adding to the pile of stress that we already have. (laughs) Yep. Too much, too much. So, you know, like I said, don't suffer in silence. Yeah. And there are very effective treatments out there. It's just, I don't want people to just kind of have it all brushed off. Yeah. So everybody listening, I'm going to put this in the show notes. Go get this book. Super, super helpful. And thank you, Shelby. I appreciate you spending this time with us to unpack sleep. It was my pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So everybody listening, go get the book. And uh, if you like what you heard today, please feel free to leave us a rating or a review and, or better yet, hand this off to share this with somebody, you know, who might be struggling with sleep and until next time. Thank you for listening to the old chicks, no shit podcast. If you like what you heard, the best compliment you can give is to share this podcast with a friend, subscribe, rate and review our podcast on iTunes or wherever it is that you listen in.